Hi everyone, I'm Kyle Dyer and welcome to Colorado Inside Out on this Friday, February the 23rd. There is a lot to discuss this week, so let's get right to introducing you to this week's panel. We have Patty Calhoun, founder and editor of Westward, Jesse Paul, legislative reporter and editor at the Colorado Sun, Amber McReynolds, a national election administration expert and former director of elections for the city and county of Denver, and also Ian Thomas Tafoya, a community leader, former candidate for Denver mayor, and a returning panelist to Colorado inside out it's great to have you back here at the table so this week let's start off by talking about the high cost of living in our beautiful state last week we talked about yet another proposed ballot initiative to cut our high priority uh, property taxes this week another plan has emerged for affordable housing communities to go up near public transit and there was also a deadline to apply for rental assistance assistance because the here and now for way too many people is just too much right now, Patty. It's tough. Well, we're hearing record evictions again because they'd been on hold during the pandemic. And so people are in so much trouble. Clearly more affordable housing is needed, at least at the legislature. They're starting to fight over it earlier. You know, they waited way too long last year to try to deal with it. But we are still going to have the divisions between the front range, which is what the current bill is really focusing on, the municipalities and counties in the front range, and building, giving incentives for building around trans transit so that you can be more dense spanking the people who aren't building around transit so you're not going to be as dense. But we talked about it this before, too. Some of those mountain communities, also critical shortage of affordable housing for workers who are so important to the recreational industry and everything else that's supported. So we're already having fights. You have the haves, the have-nots, the people who want local government to be a partner, not be told by the state what they have to do. I'm sure Jesse can weigh in on just how ugly it's going to get. The topic this session, wouldn't you say? Well, Democrats declared 2023 the year of housing and then they didn't get anything done. So they brought it back in 2024. The bill that uh, Patty's talking about is going to be kind of the, the main topic, I think, at the legislature this year. It's focused on increasing density, housing density around transportation communities, but it only applies to parts of the state that are in metropolitan planning organizations, which no one has ever heard of before, but basically it's just the I-25 corridor and then Grand Junction. It doesn't apply to the mountain communities where we know that the housing um, crisis is, is almost most acute, and, and we're digging a lot into that and asking, you know, why not have these um, mountain communities like Aspen, Summit County, Breckenridge Vale apply um, to this bill, and, and so far we haven't gotten quite a great answer. But um, in addition to that bill, you know, you're starting to see stuff come out about uh, eliminating parking requirements around buildings, um, trying to uh, promote densi density in other ways, and so, uh, you know, there all, all kinds of fights are kind of brewing now as, as these things start to get introduced. Hmm. Hi, Amber. Well, and I want to lift up the mountain community piece because um, actually, I, you know, I, in my other um, world, I also serve on the postal board. And one of the challenges that we've had, and we've seen this happen actually in Colorado where there's sh we have shortages of, of postal employees, especially in the mountain communities, because of affordability. They won't, you know, people are not applying for some of those jobs. We see that with teachers, see that with healthcare industry workers that are in the mountain community. So I think it's really important that there be a statewide solution to these issues because um, communities are be being affected statewide. And then I would also just lift up that, that we also need to be more thoughtful and creative about creating affordability for families, not just single people in that can live in high rises and apartments and all of that, but actually design spaces that, that accommodate families as well. And you've done a lot of research into this. 
Yeah, thanks for asking. I just released research with the University of Denver and the University of Colorado Denver, a geospatial mapping lab, very long name. But what we looked for about 18 months at how are we using these tools, public financing tools, up zoning, among other things, but where are we choosing the sites and are they healthy? People know me as an environmentalist, that's what I do for a career. And so how can we surgically find the spaces that have positive attributes? Um, how do we build buildings that are retrofits or have three bedroom apartments for people, that's all critically important. Rent you're talking about, that's high on people's list, whether just cause eviction or inclusionary housing, requiring them to build a certain amount of units. In the rural community, I find there's an interesting conversation going on around conservation easements and protecting public land and then the housing constructs that that makes. And so you have our up valley and down valley communities, which are realistically more segregated than they are here in the city and county of Denver or along the front range. And so transportation and housing, classic redlining conversations, can they continue here? I think so. And with transit, we have to be careful because some of these stops with fast tracks are in dangerous places. There's one in Lakewood next to an ethylene oxide facility, one next to a concrete facility in Commerce City. and so. Is that a conversation about where we allow the permits for the housing? Is that a conversation about moving the transit stops? I don't know, but we shouldn't be putting 800 people where they're going to get sick. Hmm. And there was that uh, story when that train derailed not a couple weeks ago and talking about how close some of our rail lines are to these new apartment buildings, too. Absolutely, the train lines part's a huge part. There's a train safety bill. Uh, we're going to be putting on some webinars about that soon. Debbie Ortega, councilwoman, former councilwoman, worked on that for years. Javier Marbury, representative now, working on that with the unions. Um, protecting the, the actual workers, protecting firefighters who respond, and protecting the people who live next to them all have to be part of the conversation when toxic things are coming on railways. Hmm. Okay, this is a legislative session that is similar to last year's in that the Democrats are not a united front on all issues, and they're the majority party. Jesse, you wrote a really interesting article the other day about the conflict among Democrats when it comes to a bill regarding penalties for those who steal guns. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating. In Colorado, it's actually now a more serious offense to improperly store a gun than to steal a gun that's less than $300. So a group of lawmakers, Democrats and Republicans, and actually you had gun rights and uh, pro-gun control groups on the same page with this bill that would have increased penalties for purchasing or, or stealing uh, guns that are worth less than $300. And initially it would have made all gun theft a felony. They've heard it back to make it a misdemeanor with, with kind of limited jail consequences. And even that couldn't get past the House Judiciary Committee because a bunch of the Democrats on there said, look, we don't want to incarcerate um, more people. We're worried about how this is going to affect black and brown communities specifically. Um, and it was kind of this interesting collision of these two priorities for Democrats in the legislature, gun safety and criminal justice reform. And I was, I was curious. I went to ask Tom Sullivan, whose son was murdered in the Aurora Theater shooting, one of the most prominent gun safety voices in the legislature. How do you feel about this? kind of intersectionality and what happened here. And he said, look, I agree. I don't think we can incarcerate our, our way out of it. And, and when I started looking at some of the bills that are being brought um, in past years and in this current session, a lot of them don't actually carry jail or prison sentences. They're mostly fines. So Democrats are trying to find ways to kind of thread the needle. But I think you're going to see conflicts in other bills. There's, there's a piece of legislation this year that would uh, impose new penalties on people, for instance, who use their phone while driving. You can actually do that legally in Colorado right now. And that bill, I think, might run into some trouble in the House when it gets there, because I think there's going to be questions about you know, criminalizing something that, that's not already illegal. Hmm. That is interesting. I didn't know it was not against the law that you could be on your phone. Not recommended. But of course. Not, not against of course. Amber. 
Well, I think with all of these issues, you know, it's important that we uh, keep the safety of our kids in mind. I, I have two kids in public schools, and, you know, I hope the legislature continues to prioritize, um, especially with gun safety-related issues, you know, the issues that we see with regards to schools and school safety. Um, and, you know, I think that there has to be, there's, there, there has to end up being a balance of uh, a disincentive to steal a gun uh, along with, you know, accommodating the concerns about incarceration. So hopefully lawmakers can figure that out and work their way through it. Mm -hmm. Ian, what are you looking at at the legislature? I know you're there a lot. Yeah, there's so many bills moving. We mentioned a few here around train safety. There's air quality legislation, I think is high on the list, big rallies that are taking place uh, actually yesterday. And what they're about are how are we going to rein in the fact that we're out of compliance with our air quality. The federal government's told us for a decade that we're out of compliance. And we actually just found out from a new rulemaking of a couple weeks ago, they're going to lower PM2.5, which is like the smallest little particles that come off of a train truck or from tires from a car. So if you live by highways, it's going to be really a, a concern around your air quality. And uh, these bills are around reining in our ozone pollution. We've tried to exercise all the tools we have. We have to go after enforcement. We have to be talking about permitting. I chaired the state's Environmental Justice Action Task Force. Land use and permitting are the first two steps of whether we have a clean future for clean energy or whether we continue on a path of allowing polluters to win. Okay. Well, let's go back to the guns right now. It's interesting because Rocky Mountain gun owners, which used to be so controversial and they still have take are taking some controversial stances doing a lot of lawsuits but Dudley Brown their founder has kind of been reined back in so there actually is more let's just say coherent gun discussion going on at the legislature but there are divisions in the Republican Party there are divisions in the Democratic Party I mean Tom Sullivan's positions I think are the fascinating ones because to understand what he went through with his son who was killed in Aurora and that he is still able to split the difference and say, yeah, you have to be fair. You don't want to incarcerate everyone. You don't want to be unfair to people of color who are going to be disproportionately affected. It is so tricky, but we talked about this last week, which is mostly there's so many things going into kids and violence. The 13-year-old who was charged in the RTD shooting the gunshots outside schools just this week in Denver, and you've got to fight it on so many different fronts. And the shooting down in Colorado Springs, right? You know, making national news again between two roommates. Okay, all right. Um, let's talk about the presidential primary. It is coming up quickly, March the fifth here, and we've all received our ballots. Amber, as our expert when it comes to elections, uh, let's start this with you. Well, so. Um, tricky presidential primary because even a lot of the names that are on the ballots that Coloradans received are no longer in the race. So um, it's important for voters to certainly pay attention to that. Um, regardless, I, you know, I'm always, even if it's not super competitive or your candidates dropped out, make sure you turn your ballot in because it's important to um, participate regardless. Uh, right now, I think I saw Jeffco yesterday was at about 10% turnout. Um, they usually lead the state, so my guess is that's 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 probably on the higher side. Uh, we'll see how this you know transpires, but I don't anticipate a huge a huge turnout in this primary just because there isn't as much competitive uh, races or um, contests as there was in 2020. Um, but I think you know again the county clerks do a great job in the state. The secretary of state's office works hard to make sure this election happens, and um, you know this is the start. So. And there's so many names on the ballot. 
and many of whom are no longer in the race. That's right. Many many of whom are no longer in the race. I've you know I think I've talked about this on the program before, you know about the need of having like a ranked choice voting kind of thing, so that if you cast a ballot for someone that ultimately drops out by the time the primary happens, that you won't you know lose that. So uh, that would be nice in the future if we can figure that out. Happy to give you the opportunity to plug ranked choice voting yes. again, <laughs> Ian. I think I'd like ranked choice voting. I think I would have done well in ranked choice voting. I think it gives the idea that uh, somebody has to be a reasonable person to the candidates and to the public, right? Because I don't think people are going to pick their second choice or the third choice if they're not kind to people and that can cooperate with people. So I think that there's a lot of benefits from that while still getting to stay in a wiggle room of a lane. Uh, I want to tell people there's also caucuses that are taking place, um, in particular for the Democrats coming up here in a couple weeks. Um, the system feels really complicated. Uh, I vote here. I can't. Some of these people aren't on here. The caucusing is complex. How do you work your way through the system? I think that's part of the elitism of the party system, where everyone's a volunteer who has the resources and where's the knowledge. I think there are some parties that are doing a better job um, of bringing in a wider tent of people, using more advanced tools, and having conversations that are more open. Uh, and I think people would understand what that party is. I think this is the Democratic Party. Uh, it's pretty clear to me. Um, they want to continue along a path of trying to make caucuses available to people online. They're going to have their state party conference online as compared to the Republicans who want to close people out and select a winner before uh, they even have gone through all their court dates. Yeah, speaking of Republicans picking, you know, they've said they're endorsing Donald Trump in this primary, yet Nikki Haley is coming here next week. She is, and I think we've guaranteed that the U.S. Supreme Court will make a decision on Friday afternoon, just before this airs, because we've had to tape it before then. So it, we, people who vote for Donald Trump in Colorado, um, God rest your souls, we will not know yet if the, those are going to be counted or not. Odds are good that the, that the U.S. Supreme Court is going to say he can remain on the ballot in Colorado. But I'm glad Nikki Haley is coming, energizing people in the state, not giving up on Colorado, just showing people there can be alternatives. Of course, on the Democratic primary side, you can actually even kind of basically vote for none of the above. That's the first time that line has been there. But we also have to remember, it's so important in the primaries to be able to have unaffiliated voters get involved, not in necessarily in the presidential primary, but come June. There is no reason that you should have to be affiliated with a party in order to choose who you ultimately get to vote for in November. So I applaud Colorado for continuing to make voting easier and making it wider. And do we have to stress again, because people do get confused, the unaffiliates get two ballots. You can't fill out both. You fill out one, send one in, discard the other. Exactly. Yeah. Jesse. I think the uncommitted delegate option, kind of the none of the above option on the Democratic ballot will be kind of interesting to see how many people actually seize that opportunity because I think there's a lot of questions among Democrats about enthusiasm for Joe Biden, maybe among unaffiliated voters, but kind of talking about low turnout, right? I mean, if this is a low turnout election, could Nikki Haley surprise us? I don't know. I mean, with, with if 15% if of voters or something like that cast their ballots in Colorado, I think there's a chance that you might see a, a tighter race. And Colorado's uh, delegate apportionment based on the presidential primary is not winner take all. So the fact that she's coming here, I think, is an indication that she wants to pick up some some delegates from the state. I think it's possible she has to win more than I think 20% of the statewide vote under the, the Republican vote, the Republican delegate apportionment rules to get some delegates at the convention there. Um, and in terms of uh, you know all the people on the ballot who who are no longer in the race, I always encourage folks. I know you might not like this, but 
hold on to your ballot like in these presidential primaries until the end because my, my wife did this a few years ago where she voted for someone who dropped out of the race. You never know. Uh, you, you never know what's going to happen between now and election day. If, if there's an election to, to vote late, this might be it, the presidential primary. Okay. And speaking of, if you haven't sent in your ballot yet, this Sunday is the final day that you can mail it in, right, Amber? Otherwise, you have to drop it off somewhere in person. You, to make sure it gets there on time, you want to you want to mail it, you know, at least a week out, and then drop off at one of the many 24-hour drop boxes around the state is right. always a good option. Right, absolutely, and there's so there's hopefully convenient one to you where you live or work. All right, when it comes to the congressional primary election, that is at the end of June. And it became official this week that Doug Bruce, the author of the Colorado Taxpayer Bill of Rights, is running for the 5th Congressional District. But our Tabor refunds and taxes are not his campaign priority. Uh, they're topping the list, and he's talking about the migrants. Yeah, it's challenging to see human lives being wrapped up into politics, what happens every single day. I think it's a humanitarian crisis that is being exasperated because of the politics that are at play. I think putting up razor wire between states, which I also have had conversations with my friend who's a congressman from Las Cruces, mind-blowing to me. This needs to be coordinated. I agree with Mayor Johnston that we need to do something about this. Some of the same solutions with some more cultural responsiveness around language access that we've had for the unhoused I think can be applicable here. We gotta be smarter than just putting everybody in hotels. How, if we're gonna put people to work, can we have them actually build the housing they need to live in? These are the conversations that we were having along the campaign trail. These are conversations I continue to have uh, with him. And I've look, I've been on the phone. I've gone to Lakewood City Council to ask for their support. I've had conversations with commissioners from Jeffco saying, when are you guys going to put up your part? That's for the housing crisis. That's for the homelessness crisis. That's for transportation funding. Denver has consistently bared the brunt of that. And we, we know that we need to come together. And so we're asking them all to dig deep. I'm putting in the time to call people. We have to keep hope in it and humanitarianism in it. And guess what? Climate crisis is real, y'all. And people are going to continue to come from south of the border and from other places in America. And so we have to be thinking about how we're planning for that process. We saw it happen in New Orleans when there was a hurricane. People moved here. It is going to continue to happen. So we got to figure that out. And look, the immigration system is so broken. We also have to remember the DACA people. We have to be talking about how expensive it is. We need solutions. And I guess what? I don't like trading it for war. We're sending all this money over for war. They got us all excited that we were going to get some finally some immigration action. And instead, they backed out and said, let's still send $100 billion for war. I'm not for that. OK, Patty. Well, the governors are in Washington right now. So we'll see if migration and how to deal with all the migrants coming in becomes an issue. Ian's exactly right that migration is going to continue because you have, it's internal. We have problems with the environment in, color, in the U.S., but external. There's so many countries where people still need, are fleeing. We did a story about Mauritania. So Aurora is not really interested in having a lot of migrants there, but suddenly... Mauritanians are going to Aurora because they have some stores there. They have some other earlier refugees there. And so that's a really unique group that they have to deal with. Thousands are going into Aurora. So Aurora, which has kind of stood back on some of this, is definitely going to have to get involved and probably work in league with Mike Johnston. And you hope all these metro mayors do talk about it because it's going to be a shared burden. We can't go down and close the border ourselves. We have to focus on who we have here already and how we're going to help them and how we're going to continue to help the people who are already here who need support. Mm -hmm. Jesse. 
I guess looking at this as an election issue, you know, Republicans have been hanging out a lot uh, with the candidates in the 4th Congressional District at some of their debates and, and talking to them. It's a top issue for Republican voters heading into the election. I don't think it's an issue that Democrats are, are, are going to make a decision upon um, come November, given, you know, I think if you look at the presidential race, right, you've, you've basically got one option at this point in, in Joe Biden. Um, but, but in some of these congressional races, especially some of these competitive uh, Republican primaries, I think you're going to see some pretty hard line positions staked out by uh, the Republican candidates because they, you know, Doug Bruce used this, right? It's, it's something that he feels like he can use to differentiate himself from other folks. And so it might be a kind of a race to the right in, in terms of how to deal with, with the migrant crisis that's, that's going on in Denver and the rest of the state. Um, but again, not real solutions being offered by folks. And, and obviously, at the end of the day, it kind of boils down to what you can get passed in Congress and in a split Congress that, that requires compromise. And it seems like nobody wants to do that. Mm -hmm. okay. Well, I'm going to, I guess, take it up a, a little bit to the federal level, because um, this is all, we, our, our Constitution states that we have a representative democracy, and people get to decide who represents them. Congress and the approval rating of Congress is at an all-time low. And exactly what we're talking about here with, um, with, with the crisis, the humanitarian crisis that we're seeing in this city and cities around the country is a failure of Washington, D.C., and specifically Congress. And, and we see that. And it is, they, are, they, are, uh, they have become broken. Uh, to the point where the, the stress is coming down to the cities and it's coming to the states. And it's not just this issue, it's also the funding of our elections. Critical infrastructure is all the local burden is, is carried at the local level, the county level here in the state and around the country. And it is because Congress has uh, not done anything on, on bills that are bipartisan. All of these, all of these pieces of legislation we've just talked about had bipartisan sponsors, and it still has not gotten through because politics is broken there. And so you sort of roll that back, and then you look and see, well, 90 plus percent of congressional districts are not competitive in the country. They don't have to be responsive to the people they represent. So I think that you know we have to kind of think about these things not only in the context of the issues, but also. How, what, why are we getting these outcomes? And it really is, goes back to how are we electing people? Are, is there fair representation? Are there fair districts? Is every, does everyone actually have a voice in the process? And we have work to do mm -hmm. on that. And we have this being an election year. Yes, okay. absolutely. Now it is time for us to go around the table and share some of our highs and lows of the week. We start with the low points so we can on something positive. Patty, let's start with you. Something that disappointed you this week? Well, during Black American History Month that someone vandalized the MLK statue at City Park. You know, this follows in the wake of a Chinese American marker that they were just installed last year downtown, also disappearing. But uh, whoever took it, please return it. And it was, I mean, a hard thing to steal. Oh, yes. It Someone was a put a core. lot of time and effort into that. Yeah, yeah. Jesse. So we talked a lot about all the presidential primary candidates who are on the ballot in Colorado but are no longer in the race. None of them have actually withdrawn from the contest in Colorado. So you can still vote for them. The votes will be counted. The plus side is the press will get to figure out, you know, how, how many people cast ballots for people who are in the race. But why not just withdraw from the race? Just make it easier on everybody else. But none of them have reached out to the Secretary of State's office and done that. If they withdrew, would they get their $40,000 back? The no, people who are running that, in the that's Republican different. Yeah, no, yeah. The, no. The, Republican money, the Republican Party can do whatever they want with that mm -hmm. money. Okay. All right, Amber. Uh, well, my my low is for sure Navalny getting getting killed by a brutal dictator um, in in Russia, and you know I I think it again just highlights that democracy is on the ballot worldwide, democracy is under attack worldwide, 
um, and it is, and, and there are bad actors that are pursuing an agenda to destroy representative democracies like we have in the United States, and and that was that was yet another example of it. And so there's more elections for president or prime minister than at any other point in history that are happening in 2024. So literally, when I say democracy is on the ballot, democracy is on the ballot worldwide. Ian. I'm going to piggyback on a little of this, which I think is civic engagement feels down, whether that's voting, public comment. Uh, I've been appointed to the Denver Public Schools Bond Committee, and you look how much money went into that election. All of the energy about that. Not one person showed up to testify when we're talking about $500 million of investments, up to a billion over this whole project. So I'm using this as an opportunity to tell people to get involved for DPS. But whether you're, you want just cause of eviction, transportation-oriented development, gun control, you have to put your butt in the seats. That's how the power is wielded. And you have to stay till the end. I want to make that very clear to people. I see people march in, make a scene, and leave before the voting's over. You have to sit there and make them sweat. OK, all right. Uh, something positive. Well, on the happy note for Black History Month, come downtown, forget this whole Denver DK thing, come downtown on this weekend, looks great, and there's jazz on Welton Street again for Black History Month. So on Saturday, you should be on Welton Street. And it's going to be a great weekend. It's going to be beautiful weather. Otherwise, good. Okay. I was lucky enough to go to the Avs game on Tuesday night, and they beat the Canucks, which was awesome. But also, Nikola Jokic was sitting there in the front row with his family after coming back from Indiana and, and the All-Star game. I just thought that was awesome. Just what, what a great guy to be you know, supporting another Denver sports team and, and you know, everything that he's got going on in his life. He's there cheering on the Avs. With his daughter in his lap. It was great. And his Avs hat on. Just another guy. Yeah, it was great to see that. Amber. So I'll go with the sports theme. So uh, actually tonight, uh, the Denver Nuggets has the Children's Diabetes Foundation at their at their game, and I'm going with I'm taking my son who who is type one, and my daughter, and we're going to go tonight. And I'm glad that they're um, celebrating and and hosting the the Children's Diabetes Foundation there. My my exciting thing for the week is uh, another bill at the legislature around the Environmental Justice Action Task Force that I told you I chaired. Uh, we're working with the governor's administration to reform more than a dozen state agencies, bring resources to understand cumulative impacts, and to increase enforcement across air, water, and soil. This has been years of work. It required marching on the governor's house, sitting in the seats to get the thing passed, and then like more than 70 meetings across the state of Colorado to write these best practices. And we're getting calls from people all across the country um, about how we're implementing it, and it just feels so good to be so close to closing the, the door on that chapter. Well, thank you for that. For sure. All right. My high of the week is this place, PBS 12, which is celebrating its 44th broadcasting anniversary. Back in 1977, the Front Range Educational Media Company applied for an FCC license to operate on Channel 12. Two years later, in 79, they were granted a license with the call letters KBDI. And then in the next year, on February 22nd of 1980, KBDI began broadcasting, and 44 years later, PBS 12 provides impact media for Colorado. And we hope our conversations here on Colorado Inside Out every week lead you to think about our state or your community and start having discussions on your own with your friends and your colleagues and your neighbors about how we can all make Colorado even better. So I'm with you, Ian, on that. Thank you, panel, for joining us this week. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. We appreciate it so much. I am Kyle Dyer. I'll see you next week here on PBS 12.